The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not wrong. It's time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. It's a pretty one. Look. Fuck, Clement. Send the police. Send the police. Any guys, don't be a hero, mate. And I said, I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogers. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands. Look how he tailed with his hands and pulled it out of his backside. Car wearing is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face. Cherub face little boy who would, who would, whose, whose life would be. I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone. There'd be an enormous amount. Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of, of, of horror and guilt and remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. I'm Tara Saraban. And I'm Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Bloody Murder on True Crime Island. Special edition. We're two true crime podcasts combining forces to tell you a special Australian true crime story. I'm excited. Tara, how about you? Oh, yeah. It's going to be a corker. And what will we be talking about, Cambo? Michael Canaan is an Australian triple murderer from my hometown, Sydney. Yeah, Sydney. We had to make it special. He was second in charge of the notorious gang DK's Boys, who controlled the coke trade in King's Cross in the late 1990s. These knuckleheads were involved in all manner of violent crimes, including kneecapping, extortion and shooting coppers. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we like to do a bit of listener feedback. Tara, do you want to start us off? Certainly. Edward Horgan shared a post in our Facebook group that I absolutely love. After watching customers pay for cookies from a store, a dog in Colombia started bringing a leaf in his mouth and presenting it to the store attendant. The staff decided to play along and now the dog comes to the store to buy cookies every day. Now that is one clever and very independent dog. Ooh, I like. Randy Meyer posted this in True Crime Island's group. Bring a bolt to an amusement park, then get on a roller coaster with a person who looks terrified. When the ride starts, hold up the bolt and say, wait, where did this come from? (laughs) (laughs) And we've got Marie Hinky posted this in Bloody Murders Group. Those of you who are placing Christmas lights in your yards, can you please avoid anything that has red or blue flashing lights together? Every time I come round the corner, I think it's the police and I have a panic attack. I have to break hard, toss my bourbon, <laughs> fasten my seatbelt, throw my phone on the floor, turn my radio down and push the gun under the seat, all while trying to put my clothes back on. It's just too much drama, even for Christmas. Oh, pantless Cambo. I'm taking that to my grave. Oh, he wasn't just pantless. He was entirely nude. Oh, oh, You know, good. scratching his nipple with a gun while drinking bourbon. Well, that well, well exactly like he is now. Well, actually, yeah. that is what he's doing now. Oh, pull him up. 
Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron of either Bloody Murder or True Crime Island, check out our websites. And we'd also like to thank Senga, who is the admin for both of our Facebook groups, and all of our mods who do some thankless work and they do it damn well. They really do. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, Tara and Barney, let's get murdery. I thought you'd never ask. Michael Canaan was born on May 23rd, 1975 in Sydney to Lebanese parents. From all reports, his childhood was pretty stable and unremarkable. His family were devout Christians who went to church regularly and avoided drugs and alcohol entirely. Like Cambo. Just like Bob oh, and you yes. and me. <laughs> like all of us. So. Like all of us. And it's not like we're hyped up on goofballs right now, is well, it? Well, absolutely no, not. No, podcasting is a serious business. Oh, it's a very serious business. Kanan studied at private schools, including the prestigious Christian Brothers High School in Lewisham in Sydney's West. He was a well-behaved student, like Hembo, and <laughs> achieved a good enough result in his final year of high school that he could have gone on to study almost anything at university. Even interpretive dance? Even interpretive mm. dance with a podcasting minor. <laughs> <laughs> The story of Michael Canaan's life could have gone very differently as he was aiming to make a career for himself in the Australian Federal Police. But our hot-headed mate just couldn't keep his temper in check and ended up receiving a conviction for assault. Came by rage. Yeah, he got the rage. Oh, well, you can't relate to that at all. I mean, obviously not the assault, but the rage. So, this conviction made him ineligible to join the federal police. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what? After a brief stint working in IT and inspired by the American gangster movies he watched repeatedly, Kanan decided to devote himself to evil instead of good. See, this is what can happen after one too many viewings of Scarface. I mean, why study or work hard in a low-paying job when you could be raking in the big bucks by selling drugs? In this country, you gotta make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. And when you get the power, you get the women. In 1997, Kanan joined DK's boys, who, despite sounding like a webcam service for homosexuals, were actually one of the most formidable gangs in Sydney in the late 1990s. They were led by Danny Karam, who was a big, muscly dude with a violent reputation who liked pumping iron. Actually, the whole webcam thing could have worked out well for Yeah, him. that could have. Yeah. Um, but he was also a ruthless career criminal and a really nasty bastard. Dick had migrated to Australia from Lebanon as a kid. Before his life of crime, he'd briefly tried to make a go of it in the square world, even getting a job at Macca's. But he was fired after locking his manager in a freezer. <laughs> it's hard to get a good <laughs> reference after you do that, isn't uh, it? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. After this, DK's resume was mostly made up of car theft, drug dealing, grievous bodily harm and trading in firearms. In the mid-90s, cocaine took over Sydney. Heroin had always been a problem, but coke was something new and it had a wider appeal to people from many different walks of life. DK's boys took the opportunity to wrestle control of the coke trade in King's Cross away from others through sheer brutality and some good old-fashioned organisational skills. Oh, like some sweet spreadsheets? Oh, excel me, baby. Oh, maybe a PowerPoint presentation? PowerPoint's the one. Yeah, it is. 
DK was in charge. Kanan was second in charge. Then there were the lieutenants and street runners. Other members of the gang include Rabi Mawaz, Jordan Gannon, Wasim El Assad, Charlie Gigi, Saleh Jamal, and a bloke who turned dog who would later be given the pseudonym Alan Rossini. I guess Rover was taken. Who calls their dog Rover? Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't sound right, does it? I think Graham is a far more suitable name for a dog. That's right. Graham. Dogs are called Graham and cats are called Ian. Yeah, that's true. Every week, DK's boys would collect his rent for him. This wasn't rent in the traditional sense as his tenants weren't leasing property. His tenants were paying the standover man for the right to sell cocaine on the streets of King's Cross. Failure to do so resulted in extreme violence and often death. The gang also sold coke themselves. They would buy pure ounces of cocaine, then double it by cutting it with pseudoephedrine. Then they'd put the coke into capsules and distribute it to the drug runners, who were all aged under 17, as it meant if they were caught, they really wouldn't do much time. The runners took the capsules, put them in water balloons in their mouths and walked around the streets of King's Cross selling them. They weren't allowed to have more than five balloons in their mouths at one time because if they were stopped by the police, they were expected to swallow them. I'm not sure I'd want to buy expensive drugs from the mouth of a teenager. What about you guys? Well, you have a choice. You can get them out of their mouth or out of their ass. Oh. Now you want the mouth drugs, don't you? (laughs) I don't know. Cambo looks like he's thinking about the second option. (laughs) That wasn't a balloon. (laughs) (laughs) The money from the sales would then be passed back to DK, who was grossing over 30000 a week. For all the work his boys did, they weren't paid much. And if they complained, they were paid even less. Well, how are they supposed to get the women? Sometimes Kanan and other high-ranking members were given as little as $100 a week. DK told his boys that he was putting the money away for them and he'd give it to them later. But no one was buying that and tensions were high. Despite this, DK liked banging on about how he and his boys were one big happy family and he loved to take care of them. One time, he gave all his high-ranking guys gold rings with a lion's head on them. The eyes were made of rubies and the mouth had a diamond in it. Classy, right? Who doesn't like some fancy bling? So fancy. Now, in true money-grubbing fashion, DK took $900 for the rings out of each of the recipients' pay. He wasn't giving them to them. He'd, like, bought them for them with their own money. Scumbag. Yeah. Nobody who worked for DK was allowed to do smack on threat of death. In a textbook case of do what I say, not what I do, DK spent over a grand a day to feed his heroin habit. DK's boys loved their guns and they had a shit ton of them. If people owed DK's boys money and couldn't pay up, they would often be shot through the knees and left on the roadside. Drive-by shootings were also a popular form of retribution. You want to fuck with me? Okay. You want to play rough? Okay. Say hello to my little friend. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Oh, standing ovation. DK was a very strict boss and expected complete subservience from those under him. Once, a runner didn't turn up for his shift or call to say that he couldn't come in. When DK's boys caught up with him, his excuse was that he'd lost DK's phone number. 
After knocking the guy around a bit, DK and his boys took him to a tattoo parlour and had DK's phone number tattooed in huge block numbers on his forearm. This wouldn't have actually solved the problem for long, though, as these guys were surveillance savvy and had burners. They changed their mobile phones like most people change their underwear. They were just animals, said a retired (laughs) officer who worked out of Lakemba in the late 1990s. As a high-ranking member of DK's boys, Michael Kanan had a temper that was easily ignited and the firepower to make that incredibly dangerous to those around him. Oh, yeah. On July 17, 1998, Kanan and other gang members, including Rossini, Shadi Debaz and Bassam Kazi, drove to a cafe in Five Dock in Sydney's inner western suburbs. Did they? That's lovely. That's a nice cafe. They got vegan fucking muffins. I actually believe... I believe they went there because the cafe has the best strawberry milkshakes in Sydney. Right, Cambo? Yes, yes, Tom. <laughs> Just stop telling me. <laughs> Shortly after leaving the cafe, they stopped on Great North Road at a red light. Nearby was the Five Dock Hotel. Two friends, footy players, Ronald Singleton and Michael Hurl, had been drinking at the hotel and were involved in an altercation outside over a loan that hadn't been repaid. They were joined by a third friend, Adam Wright, who tried to stop them from coming to blows. Rossini, probably coked off his tits and juiced up on strawberry milkshakes, yelled to the trio from the car, Come on, fellas, punch on! (laughs) Apparently, Ronald yelled a racist comment in response. Rossini, Kazi and Kanan got out of the car and started engaging the three pub patrons in a sport of biffo. But this wasn't enough for Kanan. He was the kind of guy who wanted to scorch the earth of his opponents. He pulled out a gun and fired four shots at the men before the group drove off. Ronald had been shot through the right arm. Thankfully, it wasn't a life-threatening injury. Adam was shot in the lower abdomen and Michael had been shot in the chest. Adam and Michael were rushed to hospital in critical condition, but both died the next day. On October 13, 1998, Kanan and Jamal shot Les Elias at Greenacre in Sydney southwest. Les was arguing with Kanan's mate, Wazim Al-Assad, about a missing gun. Where's me gun? Where's my fucking missing gun? <laughs> Kanan stepped into the conversation and pushed Wasim aside. Surprised by the interruption, Les said to Kanan, Who the fuck are you? And Kanan replied by yelling, Who the fuck am I? Who the fuck am I? (laughs) I like that they both talk like Scarface now. He then pulled out a gun and started firing at Les's feet, like they were in a saloon in the Wild West. Dance, motherfucker! Les was kicking his feet up, trying to avoid being shot. Then Jamal joined in the fun by shooting at Les's feet too. According to a witness, he'd shoot and he'd say, pow, pow, and laugh. Jamal fired two shots at Les, hitting him in the butt. He was also shot in the foot and the thigh. Jamal later summed up the attack by saying, Fuck! I shot him in the ass. The cops are going to shit! <laughs> <laughs> on October 17, 1998, 14-year-old Edward Lee was stabbed to death on Tilopia Street in Punchbowl in Sydney's southwest. 
Edward had never been to Tilopia Street before, but on that night he'd been hanging out with some of his mates and he decided to go with them to Amanda Tweedale's 15th birthday party at number 5A. As they walked down the footpath, they saw a group of young Lebanese Australians in Nike and Adidas clothes hanging outside number 3. This led Edward and his mates to think, this must be the house party. But it was the wrong house. As Edward and his friends walked down the driveway of the house, they encountered 15-year-old Mustafa Dib and his mates, one of whom said to Edward's friend, What the fuck are you looking at? Another said, I'm going to kill one of you cunts today. An argument ensued which quickly escalated into a big fistfight between the two groups. When one of Edward's friends knocked Ahmed Dib to the ground, his brother, Mustafa, ran to the house to get a knife. When he returned, he stabbed Edward in the back and chest. Edward fell to the ground as the others kicked his prone body. With his friend's help, he stumbled to the car. As they drove off towards the hospital, shots were fired at the car, which shattered a window. Mustafa, covered in Edward's blood and feeling like a real big man, told his friends, Oh, I just clicked. Fucking Asian deserved it. He later told a psychologist that the fracas wasn't his fault and had only occurred because... One of the Asians made eye contact. Oh. It, no words. Yeah. No, it's just amazing in that, like, it's like every single race is racist. Do you know what no. I mean? Later that night, Mustafa's mate Michael Kanan and some associates created a complicated alibi for him and his brother. This involved the brothers driving to Queensland after the murder. Kanan had some contacts in Queensland, book a hotel room for the guys and order a pizza under Mustafa Dib's name, keeping the receipt. This was designed to make it look like Mustafa and his brother had been there at the time of Edward Lee's murder. I bet it had pineapple on it. Yum! Disgusting. That's the best. No way. Gotta have pineapple. Absolutely, or it ain't no pizza. You got something wrong with you. Most of Sydney's traditional criminal underworld worked under the radar. They avoided clashes with cops like the plague. DK's boys were a new breed, all anger and firepower. They had balls made out of bullets, and they weren't afraid to use them. In the early hours of November 1st, 1998, DK's boys committed a drive-by shooting on the Lakemba police station. This level of hostility to the police was previously unheard of. The shooting had five officers ducking for cover as 16 bullets from semi-automatic pistols smashed through the station's windows. A 9mm calibre bullet from a semi-automatic pistol smashed into the computer monitor and glass panels were obliterated as cops dropped to the floor. One even had to drag himself behind their coke machine. Some bullets slammed into an apartment block behind, others into the station's sign and a marked car. Tyres screeched and one officer managed to radio for backup as the car sped off down Gilly Street, nearly losing control around the corner. An older officer ran out from the back of the station with his gun in both hands, screaming at residents to stay indoors. By the time 20 police officers swarm on the station, the Commodore was in flames on a nearby dead-end street. This left the police station a mess of shattered glass and equipment. Amid a sea of flashing lights, paramedics took one officer to hospital after glass cut his arms and legs. Then Police Commissioner Peter Ryan vowed to track down those responsible and to make the streets 
A Sydney safe. Looking at the bullet holes through Lakemba Police Station's windows the next day, Peter Ryan said... Apart from places like Northern Ireland and other war-torn countries, I've never seen anything like this in my career. When you stand behind that counter and look at the bullet holes in the windows and the woodwork, I'm amazed that no one was killed. The people trying to destroy the Australian way of life will simply not succeed, then New South Wales Premier Bob Carr said. Old school criminals in Sydney were appalled. This kind of tomfoolery would draw heat from the highest level of police and government. On November 11th, 1998, DK's boys were in the spotlight again after a shooting incident in Everly Street, Redfern. There has been a flurry of publicity over the years about crime problems centred on the Aboriginal community living there. In the late 1990s, a lack of jobs and some good old-fashioned shitty Australian racism led to some desperate poverty, which led to drug and crime problems for the Indigenous families living in Redfern. This led to an increase in jail terms for young offenders. Earlier that month, some members of DK's boys serving time in prison clashed with the Aboriginal gangs from Redfern there, with one of DK's boys taking a particularly bad beating in Lithgow Prison. Kanan, El Alassad and Jamal all agreed that payback is the best payback. In prison, inmates survive according to the rules that are romanticised in street culture, but these rules only really function in the prison yard. The crux of prison law is that you never cooperate with the authorities and always be ready to throw down to protect or avenge your crew. This is kind of tolerated in prison. But Sydney's police didn't care for this rambunctious behaviour and came down hard on DK's boys. Kanan, Elisad and Jamal were all involved in the shooting and were charged in relation with taking a few pot shots at Redfern gang members and blasting away indiscriminately, hitting 15 homes. But ranks closed and nobody saw nothing. The charges against all were dropped, with police citing lack of evidence. Kanan and another DK Lieutenant Rossini had also been involved for some time in hydroponically growing marijuana in a safe house at Parramatta. <laughs> Everything you say is just better than when other people say it. Yeah, I concur. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we even here, Barney? I don't even know. <laughs> Sometime after the first crop of weed had been harvested and dried, DK took the crop to his own house in Ramwick, saying he wanted to dry it further. Kanan and Rossini saw the crop the next day and noticed it had reduced in size considerably. Did DK smoke at all? Had he sold some? DK claimed that it had dried out at that weight. That's fucking bullshit, man. <laughs> I know, mate. Kanana Rossini suspected that DK had ripped them off. The remaining crop was sold for $32,000. Kanana Rossini, although responsible for maintaining the crop, received none of the proceeds. A second crop was sold for $30,000. And again, Kanan and Rossini received none of the proceeds. Kanan was thinking to himself... Does my fancy line ring mean nothing? <laughs> Kanan started to express feelings of resentment towards DK to other members of the gang. He and Rossini came to the conclusion that DK had taken advantage of them after all the hard work they'd done to build up his business. It wasn't fair, Dinkum, and they were getting jack of it. Kanan and Rossini were allowed to arrange their own teams within DK's organisation. 
But running teams meant they also had to pay DK an exorbitant amount of rent. At the time, the money Kanana Rossini earned in their teams was not even enough to pay DK the full amount of weekly rent. Now, their earnings depended on a number of variables, including the amount of cocaine sold, the quality of that cocaine, how many runners were on the street, whether any of their boys had been pinched, as in, had there been any arrests in the group, as well as stomping on the growing competition from other gangs. That's a lot of work. DK, being the stingy psychopath he was, nevertheless insisted on being paid the full amount of the rent at all times, and he became pissy with Kanan and Rossini if they could not pay. DK would go red in the face, steam would come out of his cauliflower ears, and sometimes he would make threats of violence towards them. Early in 1998, DK asked Kanan to get a loan from his parents to help him finance a computer shop in Randwick. DK used the shop to launder his money. You know, like Walter White's car wash in Breaking Bad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The business was in Kanan's name, but DK never repaid the loan. Not cool, DK. The relationship between DK and Kanan was becoming more and more strained. DK, also known as Donkey Kong, <laughs> would yell and scream at Kanan frequently. And on one occasion, Kanan said to Rossini, Stop throwing those barrels at my fucking head. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and on one occasion, Kanan said to Rossini that they should knock this cunt. Now, as we know, it was never going to end well for hot-tempered standover man and drug fiend DK. He was to Kanan like a compressed spring. Kanan was afraid of him. He'd seen him suddenly, without warning, burst into uncontrolled rage. Cambo rage! This level of intensiveness and aggressiveness was making him and a lot of the gang uneasy. There were now many senior members of the gang that believed DK was a stingy cunt and was holding back on them. They were taking all the risks and doing all the work while DK lay back with a needle in his arm taking the lion's share. This was not fair dinkum. At the time, the gang was raking in as much as $30,000 a week, whilst the lieutenants were paid shit. This tearaway faction led by Kanan also suspected DK had turned dog and was now a police informer. Oh, did they start calling him Graham? Well, that is a dog's name. Mm -hmm. By early December 1998, they'd had enough. Now, if you're having problems with your boss... It's probably prudent to have a bit of a chat with Linda from HR. <laughs> if that doesn't work, you can always quit. But in the drug business, these options are not available to you. On December 13th, Kanan and his cronies decided to kill DK. Their first attempt to knock this cunt failed. <laughs> Being a crafty little fucker, he was suspicious of everyone, even his crew. When offered a shot of poison heroin, DK said, fuck no. For DK had somehow realised that his heroin had been interfered with. He told Kanana Rossini to attack the original suppliers of the Wackety Smackety with a baseball bat. That was when Kanan decided more drastic measures were in order. At the time, DK's boys operated out of a unit in Riley Street, Surrey Hills, in Sydney's inner city. Shortly before DK arrived at the unit to prepare a drug deal with his gang, Kanan, Mawaz, El Assad and Jamal armed themselves. 
Kanan and Mawaz selected 9mm pistols, El Assad a 357 calibre revolver and Jamal a 45. They then left the unit. El Assad re-entered the unit and answered the door when DK arrived. DK smoked three bongs and then spent a few minutes talking to El Al Assad about Ali McBeal. What? It, it was a very popular show oh, at the time. Oh, right, okay. He was into it. Cool. Before leaving for his car, <laughs> El Al Assad phoned Kanan and then let him know DK was on his way and the hit was on. DK walked to his car, which was parked on the street outside. He was armed, but never saw it coming as he sat in the driver's seat. Kanan told an associate later, when DK was in the car, DK saw me and smiled at me. I pulled out my gun and smiled and nodded my head. It was over in seconds. In a hail of gunfire, DK was blasted over 20 times by Kanan and his mates. Kanan said, After I shot him, I went back and shot him again. And that Marwaz had told him, Fuck, I shot him a lot. Afterwards, El Assad went down to the vehicle, opened the driver's door without leaving fingerprints and removed DK's mobile phone because he knew that it would have their telephone numbers in it. The medical evidence established that there were 16 gunshot entry wounds to DK's body from three different firearms. All the shots had been fired from the driver's side into the vehicle, all from close range. DK left behind a wife and daughter who were probably glad to see the back of him. (laughs) Jamal left Australia for Lebanon shortly after the shooting under a false passport. But more on that later. Rossini would later turn Crown's witness against the other shooters. Michael Kanan was now king, but he would not enjoy his long-deserved crown for very long. Two weeks later, in the early hours of December 22, 1998, 23-year-old Michael Kanan would define himself in a legendary shootout with police known as a White City shooting. Kanan, El Assad, Rossini and Mark Check were driving around Sydney's inner eastern suburbs. It was 3am and they were all armed to the teeth and on their way to shoot King's Cross drug enforcer Tong and Sam, Sydney crime boss John Ibrahim's long-term lieutenant. See, they wanted to knock Tong and Sam as a ruse to make other drug figures think that Sam had murdered their ex-boss DK and they'd killed him as retribution. But the fuckwits were speeding. (sighs) Constables John Fotopoulos and Christopher Petrech saw these knuckleheads and followed them in their marked police car into a dead-end street in Paddington. Kanan and the others left their vehicle and ran to Weigel Sports Ground. The police officers gave chase shouting at various intervals, Stop! Police! In the course of the chase, Rossini and El Assad threw their pistols away. El Assad was tackled by Constable Fotopoulos and was pinned to the ground, while Rossini was able to scale a cyclone wire fence and make good his escape into a nearby street. Czech and Kanan climbed that fence too, then ran across a tennis court and into Neald Avenue. Kanan, however, stopped and turned to face the police officers. Officer Petrech had climbed onto the super high fence of the tennis court in pursuit of Kanan. Unfortunately for the constables, Kanan was neither inexperienced in nor reluctant to resort to the use of firearms. Oh yeah, he was up for it. He loved a bit of pow-pow. While straddling the fence with his right leg at a 90 degree angle to his body, Constable Petrech looked down to his right and saw Kanan, approximately four metres away, raise his left arm and shoot directly at him. Constable Petrech was shot in the right thigh. 
thinking to himself, they don't pay me enough for this shit. <laughs> but Tretch began climbing back down the way he had come. Kanan fired again and the young cop was shot in the right wrist. Keen to avoid more bullets, Constable Patrach jumped down from his position on the fence, busting his right ankle and fracturing his hip. He crawled a short distance to a pit filled with sand and fell in. After calling for help, Constable Fotopoulos pulled his service pistol from his holster and returned fire. Kanan was struck by bullets in each leg. He also copped a round in the butt and on the right wrist. Kanan fell backwards on the tennis court but continued to fire upon Constable Fotopoulos from a half-sitting position, in the course of which Kanan literally shot himself in the foot. Constable Fotopoulos returned fire and hit Kanan a few more times. Kanan, now with seven bullet wounds and bleeding profusely, continued to fire at police until he ran out of bullets. Kanan was arrested and taken to hospital where he declined to be interviewed by police. No. Not doing it, no. No. No comment. No comment. No comment. No comment, can't. Now, let's just unpack this for a moment. After ignoring police directions in his efforts to escape, Kanan chose to stop, turn and fire directly at Constable Petrech, who was at the time in a vulnerable position, precariously balanced on top of a high fence. Also, at this time, the constable made no attempt to draw his service revolver. Kanan fired more than once at the constable. He even discharged his pistol after it became apparent that the constable was retreating and was no longer a threat. Fuck's sake, what a fucking prick. Damn straight. In an effort to save face, Kanan would later tell associates that he didn't shoot himself in the foot. Nah, mate, nah. His story was that a police officer did that after his bullets run out and he was lying on the ground. <laughs> Likely story. <laughs> after the gun battle, Kanan was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Now, you'd think that would be the end, but no, there's more. <laughs> there's always more. After being arrested and charged with illegal firearms and the attempted murder of police, Michael Kanan was given bail. Oh. Mad Dog Kanan immediately went on the run <laughs> in his wheelchair. After being in the wind for over six months, on June 2nd, 1999, Kanan held a 32-hour siege before surrendering peacefully to police. In September 1999, Kanan was arrested in relation to the five dock murders and the murder of DK. In November that year, Magistrate Pat O'Shane discharged Kanan for standing trial in relation to the White City shooting. O'Shane called the two police officers stupid, reckless and foolhardy and said that the circumstances in which Constables Petrech and Fotopoulos became involved with indicated police harassment of youth, and there was not a shred of evidence that gives rise to any factual or reasonable cause on the part of these police to chase these young fellows on this particular night. But hang on, weren't they speeding? Oh, what a load of horseshit. What was his deal? Fuck's sake. The Director of Public Prosecutions was not impressed and ordered the Canaan stand trial on the basis of an ex officio indictment. In October 2000, the White City trial was aborted after two jurors indicated they might be associated with parties involved in the trial. Oh, how you going, Michael? Hey, Mick. How's My mom it going? says hi. <laughs> That's not good, jury. 
Selection. Selection, is it? <laughs> in February 2001, Canaan's five-doc trial was aborted as a result of an article in the Sydney Morning Herald the previous day. In August 2001, a Supreme Court jury convicted Canaan in relation to the five-doc murders. In October 2001, Canaan was sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment plus 25 years in relation to the malicious wounding of Ronald Singleton. That was in Five Dock outside the pub. In August 2002, Canaan received a sentence of life imprisonment in relation to the murder of DK. In December 2002, Canaan pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact to the malicious wounding of Edward Lee. He was sentenced to three years, four months imprisonment with a non-parole period of two years. Yes, these sentences will go on forever. In May 2006, after three mistrials, Canaan was finally convicted by a Supreme Court jury in relation to the White City shooting, although the charges had by now been downgraded from attempted murder to that of malicious wounding with intent. Wow, that's like eight years later. It's so much later. Uh. Canaan was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of seven years. In July 2007, Kanan was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment in relation to the Greenacre shooting. All up, Kanan is serving three sentences of life imprisonment plus 50 years and four months without the possibility of parole for the murder of three people and other offences all committed in Sydney between 17 July and 22nd of December 1998. That's really full on, isn't it? He's 23 years old. Mm-hmm. He's pretty much never going to get out of jail, and everything that he did happened within a few months. And you'd think that would be the end of it, right? Oh, there's always more, isn't <laughs> there's there? There's always you more. Bet. In prison, Kanan decided to try to get the band back together. He called Ringo, he got a Ouija board out for the others, and he asked Paul, and Paul said, fuck no. In late 2002, he was caught setting up a payroll system for fellow inmates. Kanan got busted transferring money into the prison accounts of two convicted murderers locked up alongside him in the top security supermax at Goulburn Jail. The cash was deposited into cash accounts of two-time killer Vesta Fernando and cold-blooded assassin Bassam Hamzi by one of Kanan's brothers on his instructions. These are among the most dangerous killers in the New South Wales prison system, Opposition Corrective Services spokesman Michael Richardson said. Kanan isn't doing this out of the goodness of his heart. He's recruiting a gang of murderous enforcers to use as his lieutenants. He was the leader of a vicious, violent gang when he was on the streets, and now he is rebuilding his gang inside jail. Well, he gave it a crack, but... Yeah, it uh, didn't really work No, it didn't really well, work, did he? Did I mean, yeah, what are you going to do? But what of Jamal, who fled to Lebanon after the execution of DK? Well, that didn't really work out for him. When his feet hit the tarmac, he was arrested and jailed for passport and terrorism offences there. Whilst in Lebanese custody, Jamal claimed he was subjected to various torture methods as part of his interrogation. He has described in considerable detail electric shock torture, being waterboarded, being tied to a metal pole like a rotisserie chicken and being turned upside down whilst being struck about the body, feet and head. In October 2006, he was extradited back to Australia where he was convicted with Canaan for the Greenacre and Lakemba police station shootings and sentenced to nine years. 
Michael Kanan will never be released from Goulburn's Supermax prison where Australia's most notorious criminals are kept in sterile conditions under strict security. He shares this honour with backpacker killer Ivan Malat, who sawed off his little finger with a plastic knife, and Central Coast rampage killer Malcolm Baker, who wears a tinfoil hat when he's outside the yard because he believes it will stop aliens sending messages to his brain from the sky. See, it's not a very nice place, is it? It tends to turn people nuts. So maybe in hindsight, Michael Kanan should have just stuck to working in IT after all. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, don't you reckon, guys? I, I have to say, I'm going to sleep easy at night knowing this guy's behind bars. He's a nasty fucker. Oh, what was he going to, like, wheel himself in and, like, wheel himself up the stairs? And I think you? he could still get people gut. <laughs> Probably. And... I don't know if it's worse than working in IT. (laughs) Well, I haven't worked in IT, so I don't know. Nor have I been in prison, so I'm talking out my ass. Working in IT, that's like working with creepy clowns with red balloons. Yeah, yeah, and you have to do it in the sewer. Well, that was fun. What a story, hey? Yeah, I know. Stay in school, kids. I know. Work in IT. Oh, no, don't. Don't stay in school. But, I mean, <laughs> if you're going to go and work in IT, just go straight to the streets. But, I mean, on the other hand, boys will be boys, right? Oh, there's some good advice from uh, Tara and Cambo. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah, do what we say and definitely not what we do. Yeah, I want You'll one regret that. it. I want a sweet Donkey Kong ring, though. <laughs> we all do, Barney. We all do. And as I always say, don't listen to me. What time is it, Barney and Tara? It's, it's true, true crime nerd time. True crime nerd time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel song, or a horse head in your bed, (laughs) or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? Boom, fucker, langa! You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, we'll read it out. And we have one here from Julie Capel. And it's on the book, I'm Just an Ordinary Girl, The Sharon Kinney Story by James C. Hayes. Julie writes, Sharon Elizabeth Kinney, known in Mexico as La Pistolela, is an American serial killer who is the subject of the longest currently outstanding arrest warrant for murder in the history of Kansas City, Missouri, and one of the longest outstanding felony warrants in American history. Whoa. On March 19th, 1960, Kinney's husband, James Kinney, was found shot in the head with the couple's two-year-old daughter playing nearby. Kinney claimed that the little girl, who had often been allowed to play with James's guns, had accidentally shot him, and police were initially unable to disprove her story. Then on May 27th, the body of 23-year-old Patricia Jones, a local file clerk, was found by Kinney and a boyfriend in a secluded area. Investigators found that Jones had been the wife of another of Kinney's boyfriends and that Jones' husband had tried to break off his affair with Kinney shortly before Jones went missing. Saucy. When Kinney admitted to having been the last person to speak to Jones, she was charged with a murder and upon further investigation of his death, that of James. Kinney went to trial for Jones's murder in June 1961 and was acquitted. 
A January 1962 trial on charges of murdering her husband ended in conviction and a sentence of life imprisonment, but the verdict was overturned because of procedural irregularities. The case went to a second trial, which ended within days in a mistrial. A third trial on the charge of murdering James ended in a hung jury in July 1964. Kinney was released on bond following the third trial and subsequently travelled to Mexico before a scheduled fourth trial could be held in October 64. In Mexico, Kinney, claiming to have been acting in self-defence, shot and killed a Mexican-born American citizen named Francisco Paredes Ordonez, who shot in the back. That's gutless. <laughs> ah, not cool. An employee of the hotel in which the shooting occurred, responding to the sound of gunshots, was also wounded but survived. Investigation into the shooting showed that Ordonez was shot with the same weapon that killed Jones. Kinney was convicted in October 1965 of the Mexican crimes and sentenced to 10 years in prison, later lengthened to 13 years after judicial review. But Kinney escaped from the prison during a blackout in December 1969. Jailbreaker! Despite extensive manhunts, her whereabouts are still unknown. Sounds interesting. Thank you, Julie Capel, for sending that in. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thanks very much, Julie. Now, Tara, I have a question for you. Sure, Cambo. What is Aussie as? Oh, for fuck's sake, are you telling me you don't know either? I would also like to know the answer to that oh, question. Oh, guys, you're just not my friends. Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Hey, I've got an idea. If you guys are both part of this, maybe you'll remember what it's about. Do okay. we want to do it together? Sure. All right, I'll start us off. 33-year-old Terry Peck is a white Aussie rapper who goes by the name Tupac. Sweet. He recently decided to treat himself to a special lunch at a fancy seafood restaurant in Main Beach on the Gold Coast of Queensland. He devoured two lobsters, 21 oyster shooters, a whole octopus <laughs> and several beers all by himself and racked up a bill of $621 at Main Beach's Ameris Brothers restaurant. After seeing the total of his bill, Tupac took off running. Oh, hey. he scampered. He ran onto the beach <laughs> and dived into the surf, while the staff from Amero Brothers Restaurant took off after him in hot pursuit. Now, I thought that it was common knowledge that you're not supposed to go swimming for at least 30 minutes after eating over half a grand worth of seafood, but I guess it isn't. That's uh, an old wives' tale. <laughs> Must be. <laughs> All the staff's efforts to cajole him back to land were unsuccessful. Or oh, go and come back. Well, Papua New Guinea is only 1,500 miles away. Maybe Tupac is a strong swimmer. Two police jumped on a lifeguard's jet ski and sped after him, catching up to Tupac and arresting him in the ocean, despite the fact that he kept kicking him. Tupac was charged with stealing and two counts of serious assault of a police officer and appeared in the Southport Magistrates' Court. In his defence, he said he wasn't doing a dine and dash Instead, he was going to the aid of a friend who had messaged him to say she was giving birth on the beach. He said he was arrested before finding her. Oh, what a load of shit. <laughs> Sounds legit, right? What, was she a fucking manatee? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, 
The court heard Tupac allegedly committed the offences while on parole after being released from prison in February. Magistrate Joan White granted bail but expressed disbelief at the alleged crime. When told how much the bill amounted to, she exclaimed, Oh God, by himself? When Tupac emerged from the court to a waiting throng of camera crews, he told reporters he was challenging Eminem to a rap battle and said the lobsters he ate at Amaro's brother's restaurant were overcooked. (laughs) He also said that there was shell in one of his 21 oyster shots and commented, Well, they should be apologising to me for the shell and the overpriced food. Yeah, yeah. man, I feel you, Tupac. (laughs) I feel you. I don't yeah. want shell in my oyster shell. Yeah, Plus, you know what? Maybe it's a numbers game, and if you only have a few, you don't get a shell. But if you have 20 fucking one of them, you might get a tiny piece, you know? Well, he probably got know. a pearl as well. He just didn't notice. Well, the nice little uh, crowning turd in this water pipe is that uh, his sister, who was a manatee, gave birth to a healthy baby girl manatee. And was it named Tupac? Yes, Tupac <laughs> Jr. <laughs> or pops- possibly Topsy. Or Graham. Or Graham. This brings us to the end of the episode, but before we go, we'd like to thank all the people that have supported True Crime Island and Bloody Murder. We couldn't do this without you. Oh, so it's their fault. Well, yeah, it's their fault. (laughs) I'd I'd like to thank Cambo for swimming all the way from Sydney. Oh! Oh, yeah, and to have Cambo here with us in it's, our little uh, lounge room studio is always the best. Oh, it's fantastic, and there's been plenty of beer this Arvo. Oh, so. plenty of beer chang. Beer chang, Jason. Suck it, Abercrombie. Oh, yeah, there's been plenty of shit talking too. Oh, oh so oh, much shit talk. Yeah. And, in fact, at one point Cambo had to go to the toilet and he, he went to Barney, hold my beer. It was awesome. <laughs> So thanks for listening, and I'm sure Bloody Murder on True Crime Island will return again sometime. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And I'm Cambo. And this is Bloody Murder on True Crime Island. Goodbye and adios. Boom vagalanga. And keep kicking against the pricks. And don't forget to delete your browser history. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hey, wasn't that fun? That was great. That was super fun. Oh, wow. We finished it. So, Cambo, what do you reckon of Melbourne? Oh, it's lovely. I mean... You don't have to say, like, what we want you to think. What do you actually think? Hold us balls, right? I don't know. Cambo's showing up in Melbourne and the muffler falling out of my car at the same time. Not a coincidence, is it? I don't know. What are you doing to my car, dude? Mate, look, I don't know, but uh, I love the place. I think it's fantastic, but the people are better. Oh, I thought you were going to go, oh, oh, the place is fantastic, but the people are shit. Hey, can't, doesn't your, the place you work for, don't they have an office in Melbourne? Can't you relocate Yeah, Melbourne? can't you move yeah, here? Yeah, like, yeah. like next door to us? Not that we live together. They had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. You know, like, we don't want you to leave and we're going to take measures to prevent you from doing so. Can you imagine this happening regularly? Oh, uh, livers would, would die. That would be the best. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. We'd, we'd, we'd fuck a Look, it would shorten our lives, but it, it would certainly make it a lot better. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd have liver problems, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. That is great. And I think, you know... 
you guys are the best. I love you so much. Oh, we love you. We and love we, you, Cambo. I remember last time you came and did an episode with us, and then the next time we recorded, we were both going, we miss Cambo. Everything's better I with Cambo. Yeah. But then after a couple of weeks, it fades away, doesn't oh, it? Fuck, <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. What, is is the, he ever going? Yeah, I know. Who is that guy? <laughs> I thought he was your friend. I thought he was your friend. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just a guy that's wandered in off the streets. <laughs> <laughs> Edward Woodward. DK walked to his car and he said, Fully sick, bro. You may be donkey laugh, you cunt. DK walked. Sorry. The medical evidence. The medical evidence, uh, oh yeah. It established there was 16 gunshot entry wounds to DK's body. Uh, Mustafa, my brother. Don't shoot me in the face, unless you can help it. <laughs> Aim for the butt, I may just live. Ooh, I like that. The medical evidence established that there were 16 gunshot entry wounds to DK's body. <laughs> Um, uh, all through the anus they all went up the ass (laughs) and you know what the fucker lived he was fucking fine he loved it (laughs) officer Petrech officer Petrech officer Petrech hey baby oh hi officer Petrech would you like to see my license do it in Russian now oh god Officer Petrech, you like to see license or you like to see boobies? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the license. Wise choice. <laughs> well, here we are and uh, bloody murder on True Crime Island and what a shitty fucking island it is. Oh, my God. It's covered in piss and poo and, well, just the ones we did. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone that lives here just is looking for the next boat off. Aren't they? <laughs> there are no boats off True Crime Island. It's kind of like Australia back in the convict days. Like you get oh, sent really? there and you're there for life. Lepre- but they have beer. Leprosy Island. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're paid in beer. Oh, my God. We're paid? <laughs> that <laughs> well, sounds awesome. Well, yeah, you get one beer for every one day's of work. Oh, no, that's that's not enough One beer. day's? Yeah, that's right. That's the correct <laughs> use of the plural, Well, I someone think. who only deserves a beer a day would probably say it like so, that. So, Cambo, how was your trip down here, by the way? I wanted to ask you that. Oh, I was, uh, I'd hate to think. Any Thai people out there, if you mispronounced Barney a little bit and said Barney. Mm, what's that? Crazy cunt. Oh. <laughs> that's what it means yeah, true everywhere. That. True that. <laughs> what about Tara? You got anything you oh. can work with there? No, Tara's fine. Yeah. No, yeah, but what she says ain't right. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all. And I stand by that. I'm excited. Tara, how about you? Oh, I think you just fucking pissed myself. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I'll do that one again. Yeah. Edward Horgan shared a post in our Facebook group that I absolutely... <laughs> <laughs> absolutely doodly. Oh, uh, thanks, Flanders. <laughs> Man, I should have guessed you were Flanders because of your moustache. Yeah, I know. Well, cuntily, cuntily, fuckity, fuckity. <laughs> um, all right, redo. Respawn. <clears throat> oh, you flouncy little fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you always call me that. I don't think I've ever called 
called you a flouncy little fuck before. I feel like uh, we're charting well, new territory you know, in our 20 year old friendship. Hey, now. we're the flouncy little fuck twins, Cambo and I. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I don't think I'd call Cambo a flouncy little fuck. We know we're a flouncy little fuck twins and we're going to create some podcasts and magic. Aren't we, Cambo? <laughs> you bet. <laughs> bring it on. Boom, fuck a Yes. Boom, fuck I feel like flouncy little little fuck twins would be more like them fucking I think Ca- I think Cambo should try and do some sexy Barney. <gasps> hey baby, what you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh shit in the bucket! I love that. I'm so itchy right now. Hey baby, are you wearing clothes? You don't need to. You know it's not the law. Stop grooming me, Tara. <laughs> <laughs> You mean start grooming you. I know what you want, what you really, really want. Hey, baby Campbell, do you really need those pants? <laughs> what pants? Oh, I'm sorry, Campbell, but your nundies appear to be a bit stained. You should take them off and we'll clean them for you. New undies, everybody. <laughs> I've got new undies. <laughs> new undies, who dis? In this country, you got to make the money for it. That's when you get the money. You get the... <laughs> oh my god, that was gold. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when you study. Oh no, yeah, no. Go <laughs> to the beginning, the to the beginning. Yeah. We and Ian. <laughs> <laughs> my dog Pop does angry wheeze if we leave her alone too long. So do I. Yeah, he just stands in the doorway and pushes one out. I'm doing one right now. <laughs> No, normally you like you grunt and you grimace, like you're giving birth to the angry wig. Ah. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> I thought you were having a stroke. You're welcome. No, he wouldn't just give him a tickle. No, no tickles. Not Tick- maybe like a ten dollar fine. Tickles are quite annoying, though. Maybe when you like don't want to be tickled. Arrest. Oh, nobody really likes being tickled. You don't. You don't fancy a tickle right now, Cambo? I do. <laughs> okay, guys, come on, do, get it out of your system. Tickle now. We've got a long story ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> I was just tickling myself. Barney, you're usually tickling yourself, aren't you? Is this me? Yeah. I didn't mark it as me. <laughs> See, this is why I'm always on people to mark shit. Oh, it's not because I'm oh, a control Of course, I didn't fucking highlight it in the special thing and I used a pencil. My name's Barney and I'm really fucking classy. Well, just does that say that on the spreadsheet? I believe it does. And trashy? Well, I'm Trashy McTrash face and Barney's Classy McArsey. Yeah, well, Cam- I'm Bogan McBogan. Uh, Cam-, Cam Bogan. Well, Cambo's my ally. He's my friend, by the way. Excuse me, I talk to Cambo more than you do. Yeah, well, that's a pity talk. Stop. It doing- is not a pity talk. Okay, Cambo, we're going to stand on either side choose. of the room and call you and Cambo, whoever you come, come to. Come on, Cambo. Come on, Cambo. 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 Cambo, boy. I've who got Chang. I've got Beer Chang. Beer Chang, come on. Hey, who bought the Chang for Cambo? Yeah. Um, Bloody Murder Money did, our patrons. Yeah, but I so- had to go to the shop. Yep. Come on, Cambo. Hey, boy. Hey, boy. Okay, who's got the beer? Come on. <laughs> you know what, Barney? He's probably just suffering through yeah. this and he doesn't like either of us. Ever thought of that? No, you mm. didn't because all you think about is yourself. First you get the money and then the power and then you get the Chang and then you get the <laughs> <Yeah>. Cambo. <laughs> and I turn up on your doorstep. <laughs> Look, I'm just glad he has new undies. What can I say? So I have to read something. Uh, yes. Despite this, DK liked banging on about how... <laughs> uh, banging on about what? what? 
How when you first you get the money, then you get then you get the Chang, and then you get the Cambo, and then you get the Cambo, and then I'm knocking on your door. On your back door. That's not a water balloon. Dude, I'm asleep. I'm not up for it, all right? (laughs) Tickle, tickle, tickle. Tickle. That's spoon. (laughs) Ooh, I like a spoon. (laughs) One time at band camp, he gave all it. No. (laughs) Should I do it? (laughs) No. One time at band camp, Cambo showed up (laughs) and he had no Chang and he was willing to do anything for the Chang. That's when things got sexy. Sexy. DK's boys loved their guns and they loved a shit ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> Sexually. <laughs> I just think you put an extra loved in there. <laughs> I mean, how much can you love your gun? I mean, uh, I, uh, Sexually. <laughs> hey, baby, I love my gun. I make love to it every night. It, I was cleaning it and it went off. <laughs> I was cleaning it with my knob. And it went off. Oh. Rossini probably coked off his tits and juiced up on strawberry milkshakes. <laughs> yeah. Tish, oh. your, your tits are not calm, are they? You're a, calm, calm your tits about the juice cal- tits. Yeah, calm your tits about the strawberry milkshakes, Cambo. He wishes he was drinking one with some chang in it right now. Yeah, yeah. I am. Oh, shit. Rossini. <laughs> <laughs> Rossini Rossini Probably coked off his tits And juiced up on strawberry milkshakes Yelled to the trio from the car Come on fellas Punch on (laughs) You know what I think we'll outtake that So maybe two ones slightly more in control (laughs) But I loved it And I think that was the best I really like the energy you're bringing to this game Yeah I really enjoy it uh, I think it's really nice Barney uh, and I agree That we'll have you back again We think you've passed the audition (laughs) God you're a funny cunt Cambo Canaan stepped <laughs> Canaan stepped into the conversation and pushed pushed. He pushed him. <laughs> don't push me. Oh push. Hey baby, don't push me. <laughs> Are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Well, I don't see anybody else here. You must be looking at me. You looking at me? Yes. <laughs> Fuck, stop looking at me. Don't you look at him! <laughs> Barney keeps looking at me. Hey baby. <laughs> Yeah. It's like Barney just rolled over and presented. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to open my own beers here. <laughs> really? Because I thought using Barney's butthole was your favourite way of opening a, a beer chang. It's got what? <laughs> well, that got dark. I like it. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you don't get your anus bleached anymore, so no, of course I, it's going to be dark. I get it darkened. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's creepy, isn't it? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, about another chin, Cambo. Uh, I'm gonna get another beer soon. Me too. I can't be a beer. You're all a bunch of cunts. You're all a bunch of fucking cunts. Yeah. You got that right. Fucking A. Fucking A, mate. Fucking A, mate. It's very good. What kind of accent was that? It's my selling accent. Go to selling, then we go and get some cigars. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I gotta, fi- I gotta fill up my vape. I like that hazelnut smell. It is good. I love this one. Yeah, you know I'm allergic to hazelnuts, so I, I can't suck on your vape. 
That's okay. As much as you want me to. That's why I put it in there. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, Barney, you'll just suck my vape dry. As they walked down the footpath, they saw a group of young Lebanese Australians in Nike and Adidas. <laughs> after dinner, I did a shit. <laughs> what? Adidas. Oh, after dinner. Oh, yeah, after oh. dinner, I did a shit. That's what it, no, someone pointed that out to me. It was only a month ago. I did not know that. I had no idea. I usually do one in the morning. Oh, Barney. Oh, Barney. You're a really nice guy. But also, you're kind of a dick. That's true. Some, a That's Canadian our friend Michelle. That yeah. That's exactly what she mm. thinks. <laughs> when one of Edward's friends knocked Ahmed Dib to the ground, his brother, Mustafa, ran. <laughs> <laughs> his brother, Mustafa. Mustafa, he came to the rescue. Bought the house down, man. Banging mate. shit over, man. <laughs> Just Just out, bringing the house down. His brother. Mustafa! His brother, Mustafa. Mustafa. The nanny. (laughs) The nanny, like friend. Oh, no, never. Get out. Get out. (laughs) We're done. Get back to Sydney, you (laughs) cunt. (laughs) When one of Edward's friends knocked Ahmed Dib to the ground, his brother, Mustafa. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you've ruined it. Everything's ruined. We can have a little laugh when we finally get this right. When one of no, yeah, he did, yeah. When one of Edward's... I can't say Edward now, I can't say it. I think that um, two out of three wins. Majority rules. Not, pineapple not on pizza. Not in this case. I might have something wrong with me, but pineapple's not that thing. <laughs> it will when I when you see where I'm going to put that pineapple. It's not like we have a, a literal pineapple. It's no, a I metaphorical have, pineapple. You haven't looked throughout my house. I, I have, might have pineals, pineapple squirreled you away. You do have piles, but not pineapples. <laughs> Oh God! You make one little mistake, and then you've got you pi- stick a got pineapple piles. up your ass, and you end up with piles. Is what happens, or at least in your case. Apparently, it tastes better after you eat pineapple. <laughs> yes, yeah, sperm. Sperm's meant to taste better. Oh right. Hang on, didn't you say that? Why? Who else would no, say no, that? No, 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 no. Apparently, no, no. Is if you eat sperm. P- Pineapple on pizza tastes better. better. Yeah, if you eat sperm, pineapple tastes better. That's it. All right. Okay, we figured it out. All right. Most of Sydney's traditional criminal underworld worked under the radar, and they didn't have pineapple on their pizzas. No. They have... Most of Sydney's... Tr- Triminal. Oh, you I'll, I'll triminal your ass. <laughs> you going to say it now. <laughs> <laughs> most of Barney's criminal underpants had pineapple in them. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the traditional triminal. <laughs> An older officer ran from the back of the station. Jesus. Oh, what the bloody hell is this then? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Fuck's sake. Oh, what for fuck's cunt, sake. What are you cunts doing out there? <laughs> Someone's breaking into the Coke machine. <laughs> ah. Get the fuck inside. <laughs> That's not funny. Not really. What was it? It was something like that, though. I don't, I don't think there was anything uh, better than that. I was like, oh, st- get the fuck inside. <laughs> you cunts, get back inside. These crazy cunts are shooting. <laughs> yeah, what he said. What he said. Amid a sea of flashing lights. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Oh, you bloody mongrel. <clears throat> Ooh, Campbell. I like it when you... <clears throat> 
it like that. Yeah. Hey, baby, can you <coughs> a bit more often? Oh, Campbell, come over here and <coughs> my ear. Please, Campbell, please. Old school criminals in Sydney were appalled. This kind of tomfoolery would draw heat <laughs> from the highest level of police and government. Yeah, I think that needs to be a bit calmer considering yeah. what I just did. Yeah, I, th- I think yours yeah. needs to be a look. <laughs> By the yeah. way, I'm surprised I'm saying that because we, lo- we love number 11, Cambo, honestly. Oh, yeah, but calm your tits, Cambo. <laughs> oh, calm your tits, Cambo, calm what your did tits. You put in my beer. Just more beer, huh? <laughs> Old school criminals in Sydney were appalled. This kind of tomfoolery, 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 tomfoolery. for some tomfoolery. I don't know what happened last night, but there was some tomfoolery. There's some rambunctious tomfoolery. Oh, tired from all the tomfoolery. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Chang tastes like. <gasps> oh, fuck. <gasps> Them's fighting words. I had one of those Changs last night and I did not care for it. It's just not for me. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's not for me. Barney, you also have a distinct flavour that's, well, it's not for me. Actually, oh, look, I will, <laughs> what? I will admit, but you're not going to put this on the reel, that it, the flavour has changed. Oh, has they, it? They changed the brewing technique. Oh, did they? Yes. Started doing it in a toilet. Well, are they pissing it more or something? <laughs> less. Well, they're pissing it less yeah, and it tastes allow- worse. They're not allowed to anymore. <laughs> oh, God. Pretty Rules. sure that's going to go in the real. <laughs> yeah. All these Hi, do-gooders Jason. being politically correct, you can't piss in beer vats anymore. Hi, Jason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jason have a crony with your, with your shitty Forex beer. Come on, man. Camel piss. Yeah, step up, dude. <gasps> I ain't saying nothing. Oh my god! Not what you said. But you were saying stuff before. Yeah, you were saying. Oh, the crummy you fucking gone with your weird voice. Shit. What? When I said that? <laughs> yeah, earlier. you did say that. Oh, yeah, we yeah, just no, said I it then. I don't, I don't remember it. I don't think it happened. Inevitably. Um. No, we scrapped it. Um, I know. They're loud out the back. I'm shutting the door. Oh yeah, yeah. Good idea. These are very directional marks. It's but, loud out your back. You better shut that door. It's a bit loud out my shut back door. Yeah, uh, when it's loud out my back door, I just shut it. <laughs> I'm always shutting Barney's back door. I've got a big brown bear knocking at my back door. <laughs> <coughs> always. Or you get breveled. Yep, breveled hard in the yeah. face and the back of the head in a pillowcase. Or, or bike-seated. Oh, you can be bike-seated to death. Yeah, yeah like Carl. Carl Williams, mate. He was bike seated. Yeah, I thought he was breveled. No, no, no. no that di- there was a different breveling. Ah. There have been a couple of brevelings. Yeah, get your breveling right. Yeah. Cambo. Come on, calm your tits. <laughs> this is kind of tolerated in prison, but Sydney police didn't care for the rambunctious behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really I not used to our vocabulary. <laughs> Why do I keep laughing when <laughs> I, 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 I these yeah. lovely words? I always try and get rambunctious in there somewhere. Yeah. And, and, and I'm Tom Foolery. Yep. Scallywags. <laughs> and I'm going <clears> to... <throat> see? Yeah. You know, you try and keep it going, but you know you fucking can't. I write really long <clears throat> sentences for you. That's normally my gig. I try and fuck oh, no, shit Oh, no, actually, up. you do write the... You have really short paragraphs and really long sentences. That's yeah, what he yeah. does. <laughs> so, at worst, your sentence is only four, four lines. Short arms, long pockets. <laughs> yeah, big balls. <laughs> big balls, like really big balls. Has the toilet sound gone? <clears throat> Does it ever go? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Oh, oh that's how Cameron poos. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I like it when Camber gets really quiet. Yeah, you know something. Yeah, it's uh, to bring it on. I was thinking of doing an AMSR episode just for those people who want. Oh, to is that an S and M? Strawberry milkshake. Ah, strawberry milkshake episode. Nah, not with us. You fucking won't. Oh no, actually, I've done three of those. So yeah, with us. Have you best seen time. Those are you talking about the like HSP people who are highly sensitive and shit? You have to Google. You have to Google and. What does it mean? So they're in like a flirtation tank, you and you're whispering murder at them. It's a. Audio sensory manipulation, depredation, response, or something. But you're in a flotation tank. No. It's, it's farting in someone's ear. That are getting things and they're like putting Edward these Wood. sounds and like this, but and it might be listening to me eating a banana. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's some serious Man, webcam I'll, shit, I'll, and I'll you could make bank. And it's this noise, it's, and some people, and the girl says, and you listen to it and you fall asleep. I went, so I'm going to fall asleep to Cambo eating a banana. <laughs> Stop yeah. looking at me I mean, eating I'm... a banana, please. <laughs> if you did it with your mouth, it'd be less novelty factor. <sighs> hi, Nick. Hi, hi Nixon at work because I, I always stare him out when he's eating a banana. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 